0: Today is the last in our first series, which we aptly named The Honest Issue, where we have talked to an amazing group of guests about equality, the future of technology, how women can continue to play a part in that and how each of these topics has an impact on the progression of the other. We are delighted to welcome suffragette descendant and campaigner, Dr. Helen Pankhurst, who is currently touring the UK following the launch of her recent book, Deeds Not Words. Both Helen and indeed the book sheds light on the changes to women's lives since 1918 and shares her personal experiences, thoughts and musings on the challenges that come when you are trying to change entrenched social norms. As well as being the great granddaughter of Emmeline Pankhurst and granddaughter of Sylvia Pankhurst, Helen is a women's rights activist and senior advisor to Care International based in the UK and Ethiopia. Her recent book could not have been more timely as we look to a future where we need to move beyond hashtag campaigns and see intentional change in inclusivity and gender parity in our lives and our careers. Today is also so exciting because we are doing something that F Disruptors always set out to do. We're paying it forward for other young women and giving a voice to emerging talent. So today's interview will be conducted by Bethany Percival, who's been an FD ambassador for a while now and will be one of a small collective of new writers who will work with us to develop content for our forthcoming platform launch this year. She is an amazing young woman whose enthusiasm for tech is infectious. We loved hearing her talk to Helen about feminism, life and the legacy of the Pankhurst women and her book, Deeds Not Words, which she lovingly signed for Beth at the end. This is such an important conversation to continue and we hope you will stay with us and get involved. So today I have Helen Pankhurst with me for an interview, and we're going
1: to be talking about her, her book, and the past and future of Equality for Women. Uh, So thank you so much for joining us today. Your pleasure. So my first question is, how much do you think your predecessors have influenced you with the work you're doing now?
2: Oh, um, it's so difficult to imagine an alternative life, really, isn't it? I mean, the surname has been really, really important in defining both my personal life and everything I've done at work and also how people relate to me. I think more and more so as I've grown older, actually. Um, but the other really um, pivotal factor in my life was being brought up in Ethiopia. And that's actually got to do with Sylvia Pankhurst. It was her because of her life that I ended up being born in Ethiopia. So for both reasons, both that international... Uh, interest and the interest in feminism which are really at the core of who I am they have come down through the line through the name.
1: (laughs) Yeah I can imagine it's hard to get away from such a prevalent name. It sure (laughs) is yeah. Not that you'd want to
2: though. No I mean I could have changed my name on marriage but there was no way I was going to do that for many reasons but because of what the change um, a woman changing her name in marriage would be part of perpetuating that gender inequality let alone the fact that I had such a surname so. (laughs)
1: Absolutely. Um, So when you were growing up, did you get told tales about the suffragettes and the things that they did?
2: Um, Yes. My father, who is Sylvia's uh, son. So it's Emmeline. Her middle daughter was Sylvia. Sylvia had one son, um, dad and uh, myself. So it was through my father really. Uh, And he would talk a bit about uh, that background. Um, So I knew very early on that they'd been involved in the fight for women to get the vote. I knew that there had been differences of opinion within the family, Um, but he didn't kind of force it down my throat in any way. He just now and again mentioned it. And I think he was very involved in his own life and in particular in Ethiopia and Ethiopia's cultural history. So it wasn't like it kept on coming up it was just oh by the way and it would sometimes uh, happen and then I'd ask a few questions and usually he'd say here's a book you know read um it was more other people's interests so it was when I used to come to the UK in the summer as a child and then I'd use my surname and then they'd ask a question and then they'd say oh you know and what do you think and so on so it was other people's interests I would say rather than my family's interest which generated my own
1: Okay that's really interesting how did you find Ethiopia then because I imagine it's quite different with women's rights compared to the UK so mm.
2: you know that's a really interesting question because I think some people would assume that um, the situation in Britain is a lot better than in developing countries in African countries and in Ethiopia in particular because Ethiopia is associated in many people's minds with poverty um, but it's not that simple in some ways it is true that women's daily lives uh, particularly poor rural women um, is particularly difficult and and in some ways is a reminder of how women used to live here. So, for example, it's things like, I remember as a child seeing women carrying um, sticks and uh, uh, wood on their backs, really, really heavy, and this is for fuel, for cooking food, uh, or carrying water on their backs, which is a kind of a drudgery. It's a very female drudgery. It's very much associated with women's work. And it's really difficult. It's heavy lifting work. And yet here was a society that said that women are not strong and that men are strong. And I kind of very early on saw the contradictions in in those ideas. Um, So because of the poverty, rural poverty, in some ways, women's daily life is very difficult. And it's more like what it used to be here a long time ago. But in other ways, they have always had more rights than we had in the UK. So, for example, married women had many more uh, rights to inherit and to... um Retain property than they did um, in in the past in the UK, and even in terms of political representation, there are some countries. For example, in Rwanda, it's the one country um, that, above all else, uh, it has done better in terms of female representation. So they've got further than in the UK. So they've got more than fifty percent in the UK. We're at thirty-one percent. So I think that what's interesting is not that any country has solved the problem. It's the links. Uh, the parallels between countries and some are doing better than, than the others. And maybe I got the chance to think about that. I got the chance to think about the difference between women's position in Ethiopia and women's position in the UK, two countries I knew a lot about.
1: That's definitely not the answer I was expecting. That's really interesting.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you were expecting to hear that it's a lot worse there, were you?
1: Yeah, I don't really like to admit, but yeah, yeah. I was, oh, <laughs> I yeah. think. Um The next one really is, with reports saying it will take until 2069 for the gender pay gap to close completely, how do you think we can accelerate that change?
2: Well, I feel really strongly that right now there's a moment. There's a real moment in the air in the UK and globally that's uh, about a resistance to that slow, slow, well, it's always been like this. And yes, things will change gradually and stop moaning and all of that. I think there's a resistance to that right now. And you can see it through Me Too, Time's Up, the gender pay gap reporting in the UK. So I would say that 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 this spirit of resistance, which for me feels very much like the suffragette resistance, it feels very similar, uh, provides an opportunity to really push for change in a much faster way than would happen otherwise. So if we can build on this, if we can say, okay, let's grasp this and let's really use it to maximum effect. I'm hoping that within 10 years, so within this current generation, we can see equality. So that's my goal is to say, let's aim by 2028, which is the anniversary of equal franchise. Let's hope that by then we have got um, gender equality and pay equality. I don't see why we can't do it. If we all kind of if we all demand it, and I think some of the legislation, such as the equal, such as the pay gap reporting, um, which has come into force this year, is really powerful and provides a tool to push forward.
1: What do you think we could be doing on an individual basis to help that? Then, because obviously the Me Too movement's been really good in raising the consciousness and awareness around it. But what can we do? Because obviously we're not going to go breaking like windows <laughs> or anything like yeah. the suffragettes as yeah. much as we'd like to, but. Um, so
2: my theory is that you've got a few people obstructing change that I'm calling the dinosaurs. <laughs> um, and they're very powerful. And we've got a rise of the dinosaurs globally, um, you know, in many, many countries um, and, in, and and also in the UK. And then you've got a few people, fem, strong feminists, really articulate out there, not smashing windows, but doing it in other ways, you know, kind of um, direct action, speaking out, um, just really forcefully strong feminists out there making change most people are in the middle between those two so the question is what can most people do and how can most people ensure that the direction of change isn't a return backwards to what the dinosaurs want to see but it's a progress towards um, equality of opportunity and the possibility of anybody to do anything they want in life Um, so I would say to those people who are not particularly active there's a choice here you know Sitting on the fence, I think, is not an option because it's sitting on the fence that perpetuates inequality. So very small acts, very small speaking up when you see something that's unfair, unequal, that's discriminatory. Uh, Men speaking up when they see a woman being picked on. Uh, women speaking up when they see, um, uh, say white women speaking up when they see somebody of color being discriminated of, the issues of sexuality as well. There's so many of these factors for me are totally interrelated. So I think everybody, this is a, this is us all taking responsibility. And I firmly believe that this isn't about policy change or a few people. It's about all of us. And if we all come together, there's so many things we can do in our personal lives, in our professional lives. Um, we can support women in so many ways, you know, through sports and so on, because all these worlds are still unequal. If you look at how much funding and how much popular support there is for sports, it's so predominantly for men. If you look at uh, support for women in culture, if you look at support for women politicians, uh, demanding equal pay, uh, changing what we learn at school as youngsters so that we don't perpetuate those inequalities by studying only female um dominant subjects and really challenging ourselves to enter what are traditionally male spheres. I think everybody, irrespective of their age, can find little niches where they can make a difference. (laughs) That's a great answer.
1: (laughs) On the same kind of lines then, Uh, Do you think that we can trust companies to choose the best person for the job or do you think society is still conditioned by stereotypes making positive discrimination a much needed recruitment tool? So for example the Sex Discrimination Act of 2002 which allows positive discrimination until 2013. Um, Do we need that?
2: I think we do. I think if we don't put some strong measures in place, it will just be a very, very slow change. And I'm fed up. I'm f- and I think all of us are fed up. It's just too slow. So why say, oh, well, just do it the normal way and um, you know we'll get there in the end. Why? Why when we know there are tools at our disposal to actually affect change quicker? And I don't buy this idea that... Um, uh, actively encouraging women and finding ways to proactively ask them, get them to sign up for things, get them to submit their CVs and so on, um, and having quotas and things like that. I don't buy that that means that you're getting less well-qualified people because by definition, men are more likely to have the confidence to apply. Men are more likely to um, be provided the opportunities. The whole thing is stacked in favor of men so a little bit of support to women is not undermining in uh, that uh, level playing field it, we have a totally unequal level play we have a totally unequal playing field so just finding ways to address that i think is is absolutely required and in so many ways
1: so for me as a woman in tech obviously there's not many of us and i've grown to just know that now yeah um I was recently looking at jobs and one of the interviews I went to they said oh we've had hundreds of applications from men and it's the same old same old so as soon as we see a woman like that's amazing we see what skills she has but then it's great that they do that but that did make me feel a bit like a token like maybe they were just looking at me because I was woman maybe it wasn't just based on the skills that I had
2: Yeah. I mean, I can understand that. I can understand uh, the individual feeling, oh, why did they recruit me? But I think the important thing is that they recruited you and therefore that you can start changing the atmosphere, the choices of what that tech company does, the approaches that it uses so that more and more women feel comfortable in that space. Because the other thing that happens sometimes is in tech companies where there's only one woman, she feels out of place. So she doesn't stay there. So you perpetuate the problem. So I think it's grab hold of any opportunities that are offered and make sure that you're part of the change and that you actually ensure that um, down the line they are doing it not maybe because they need a woman, but because they've seen the value of that woman.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in your book, um, you cover the impact of social media um, towards equality. Um, we've seen some vile trolling of women on social media in the past few years so do you think social media helps or hinders us in the battle for equality and respect?
2: Both. I think <laughs> that um, I think social media is a phenomenal tool for feminists to uh, find each other, to share activism, to affect change, to get their voice out there in platforms um, that were not available in the past for the outreach potential is fantastic. The problem is that Social media perpetuates the existing norms and provides a new avenue through which some people can be particularly discriminatory and particularly vile in their um, uh, in their language and the way they approach things. And I don't know why, but anonymity seems to allow that possibility to be particularly vile. So I think if we can use social media, but if it is controlled so so that this most abusive. Um, language is stopped, then we would have a much better um, opportunity for all. And then it's power for good would be great. At the moment, it's power for good and it's power for bad are pretty balanced as far as I'm concerned. There are a lot of initiatives to try and do that. So I think Twitter is looking, you know, has tried to improve its uh, policies, but uh, I think it could do a lot more and it needs to do a lot more. And actually, there's a letter that's just been um, sent out to um, the head of uh, Twitter to say, look, you know, take this more responsibly. It's by a number of uh, different women, women's organisations And uh, i have signed up to that letter. So I think that we also could use social media to demand better of social media.
1: Uh, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so recently a film came out called Suffragette as I'm sure you're aware. yeah. And um, So you helped to guide that film and you actually had a part in it as well, didn't you? Yeah. yeah. Um, so how did you help the people making the film decide what kind of content they were going to put in it? So I
2: was involved in just a few key moments. Um... Uh, uh firstly, some of the imagery that they use is of Sylvia Pankhurst, my grandmother's design. So they wanted approval of that. Secondly, they showed me the um, uh, script and I had some f- minor comments about the script. I can't even remember what I suggested, actually. Um, <laughs> and then they said, well, would you like to be in it? And I said, yes, would love to. I, at, the mo- at the time, I had no idea that it was going to be quite as powerful and as... Um, important really, an initiative as it turned out to be. Um, So then I did a one-day screening uh, with my daughter as well. And actually, she beats me on this because she even has one word. I don't have any (laughs) words. She has one word and her one word is, hello. (laughs) So, um, But no, seriously, it was fantastic to be involved in it and to be part of that recreation. My main contribution was probably the suggestion that at the end where you have the uh, you have the different dates of when women got the vote in different countries. Um, that was my suggestion. They'd only put two dates, the uh, 1918 when some women got the vote, and 1928 when all women got the vote on equal grounds with men. And I said, you know, if we had the uh, figures, uh, some, some other dates, including some other issues around uh, women's rights, so they added the date of when women uh, had greater control over their children as well, but also some of the international dates, you would see that this is a universal story. So you have the at the, at the end, you've got the different dates of um, some of the countries when they got the vote. And I thought that was really powerful because it universalizes the story and it brings it up to date. So you then realize how long this fight for the vote has been in so many different countries. And in particular, in the audiences, I always found that um, when Switzerland was mentioned, and that's in the 1970s, there's always this gasp of kind of, really, did it really take that long? And then uh, with Saudi Arabia in uh, 2015, as the last country that's listed there. so um it wasn't just in the uk that the fight was um that it took so long really
1: yeah i have to admit i did gasp as well as yeah. switzerland i had no idea it took that long yeah. <laughs> so we say now that women all women have rights but i was looking this morning and women who are refugees and in prison and things like that they actually don't have rights so What do you think we can be doing to help in that? Because as far as most people are concerned, and I was until this morning, all women had the right to vote.
2: I think uh, being more aware of those issues, and it's about uh, the different levels of discrimination that some women face. And you could look at the political one, but you could look at exactly the same issue if you look at uh, economic issues or many other rights, Um, but just focusing on that one about the right. If you are a woman who faces domestic violence and you're in a refuge, you don't have uh, a uh, there is a, there is the fear of identifying where you live. Um, so that has been one issue. And there's been campaign to try and ensure that women who suffer from uh, domestic violence and who are worried about uh, visibility can still vote. Um, and then there are a number of other categories, women who are worried about their status, their um, uh, legal status also. Uh, so I think just being aware of the fact that Uh, There are still some who legally can't vote. More importantly, there's an even larger group of women who could vote but don't vote because they don't feel empowered enough um, to to, to, to demand that vote. And the sad thing for me about that, it's those women uh, who most need to identify um, what they want policymakers to be doing. those people who feel least enfranchised are the ones who are least likely to vote. So that perpetuates the cycle that you have in power politicians who are most likely to think about those who vote for them. So they don't reflect the interests of those who don't vote. So you've got this cycle that perpetuates itself. So I think it's really, 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 really important that all women vote. But it's particularly important that those women who feel that society isn't and the government isn't um, doing what they want a society and government to do. It's really important in particular that they do. Often young, um, less wealthy women are the, the ones in particular that, that need to have their voice heard.
1: So we just need to open up that conversation. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, uh, well, thank you very much. That's all my questions. Okay,
2: that's a pleasure. Can I ask you some questions?
1: Oh, absolutely.
2: <laughs> so tell me a bit more about what you do. You're saying you're a, a woman in tech.
1: Yes, so I am an Android developer. So I thought when I was growing up that university was the be all and end all. If you didn't get into university, you couldn't do anything. So when I got my A-level results and I didn't get the results I needed to go into university, I kind of had a a quarter-life crisis, I guess.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Um, so, Does that mean we can have quarter-life crisis all along? So, yeah, quarters. absolutely. Then I'm in, I'm, I'm, okay, I'm with you. Good. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> so then I didn't really do tech for a bit, but then I realised that I actually really missed it and I loved doing it. So I was looking to see what I could do and then I found out about apprenticeships, which weren't really offered to me when I was looking at universities. And I went to an apprenticeship, I was there for a year, did that apprenticeship, and then I've been in tech for two years now. So an Android developer, and I've also been a scrum master, which is like a facilitator for meetings and like making sure the team know what they're doing and that kind of thing. A bit like a mum for the team, really.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And um, do you you see this as something that you continue to do a long time? Or do you have a goal of what you want to do with it all? Have you got a vision of um, where it's going to take you?
1: Um, well, it's, it's going to be an odd answer, to be honest. Um, I love tech and I love doing it, so I do want to do it for as long as I can, but I do want an animal sanctuary at some point. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's my end goal.
2: <laughs> what kind of animal sanctuary? Just generally animals in general?
1: Just any animals I okay. can save. <laughs> so getting battery chickens and stuff and like bringing them to my farm and letting them just live out a nice, happy life is what I'd actually really like to do. (laughs) But obviously you need a bit of money to do that.
2: (laughs) So this is, the money is from the tech and then long-term it's that, okay. Um, What would you say the areas of your life uh, are that have been, uh, have given you a lot more opportunities compared to say the life of your mother or your your grandmother? Where do you feel you've uh, been able to grow more and what do you think actually maybe your life is more difficult than that of your mother or your grandmother?
1: That's a really interesting question. Um, I guess I've done more with my career than my mum or grandma. So, uh, they went into retail, but they focus mainly on looking after ch- their children. And I've taken a more career-driven approach. So I found that I've had more opportunities through my career. So through um, working at UK Fast, that's how I met Debbie, and that's how I'm able to do this interview today. Yeah. Um. So I guess that's how it's worked out better for me. But then. I am going to find it more difficult to buy a house, for example, than my mom or grandma would have, even though like I would have the money to do it. It's like saving it up and stuff. And it's just a lot more difficult to get on that ladder. So I guess that's the harder bit for me at the minute.
2: So more opportunities to do what you want to do with your life uh, and more economic independence, but actually less ability to use that money to invest in a home. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, you're asking me about the film Suffragette. Um, can I ask you also what your uh, reaction to the film was?
1: So I I knew that they did a lot for us and got the vote and everything, but I didn't know the details around it. So seeing them actually going into prison, doing the hunger strikes, throwing rocks through windows, doing stuff that I would consider crazy yeah. today was absolutely amazing and I couldn't believe just how much they put on the line for us. And it was really touching just to know that people did care that much, even though like some people died for it, knowing that they would never actually see that they would get that vote. They did it for us. So it made me feel a bit guilty because I felt like, well, what am I doing? Because like, I'm doing nothing like that. So it made me want to do more and want to find out who was doing things like that so I could join those organisations and actually help with that.
2: So is there a sense that um, apart from the the guilt which maybe links into then wanting to vote but also thinking about what you want to do with your life, is there a sense that uh, maybe some of the that energy into wanting to change the world... Um, is something that links to the feeling that there is right now, you know, the time's up, Me Too, all of that. Does, does that at all resonate with your own personal life, that actually right now it feels like a time when maybe the, that, that demand for a change, that resistance to social norms um, is something that you feel your generation wants to do actively?
1: I think so it feels like at the minute it feels like there's a bit of an electric in the air you Mm -hmm. know like you can feel that things are changing um so with all those movements and with celebrities actually like taking a stand and doing something I think that's really important for people of my generation and younger because then we can see our role models who are on tv in films and stuff like that we can see well actually like they're standing up for what they believe in Like maybe we should follow suit and we should also be doing that. And if they make it seem okay and normal for us to do that, I think it's easier for us to then follow and also do that. Yeah.
2: So are there any anecdotes in your life? I mean, I'm thinking that, for example, I was talking to somebody the other day and she said, she was a young person, and she said, we just use the word, don't be a Harvey. When there's anything going on at work, and that's enough, <laughs> um, it, 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 it's become the language for just 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 watch it. Um, have you have you had anything like that? That's um any anecdote from where? I guess I'm asking that because there's a fear in some circles that this "Times Up, Me Too" is just celebrities up at the top, up there, and it doesn't affect women's daily, young women's daily lives. You know, the your everyday woman, if you will. It's that it's a celebrity gloss that isn't impacting on everyday life. What would your response to that be?
1: Um, I think. The celebrities have definitely opened it up for us, and that's great. And I saw on my Facebook a couple of people who I knew quite well, but then they put their stories of Me Too out, for example, and I was shocked by that. I didn't really know that anything like that was going on. Um, And I think it's made it easier for us to talk about as well, so I've got a couple of friends that I work with, and we do talk about stuff like that now. And it's a lot easier to bring that into a conversation because you can say, oh, such and such celebrity said this, like, and then you can then elaborate on that. So I think it's definitely helped in that respect.
2: Okay. Another question. Um, something that's come up quite a lot is, um, how men and young men in particular respond to all of this. So, um, the conversations that I've had with people is that this isn't about men versus women. It's never been about men versus women. It's, it's always been about those people who want to perpetuate hierarchy, uh, privilege, um, and those people who want a more progressive alternative. Um, but for men who are stuck in hearing a language that's always, this is men versus women – it's very difficult for them to position themselves and to know how to respond. So I was at an event um, where uh, a young man said to me, what I don't know is how my silence can be heard as a positive silence. So I want to be able to be supportive when women are having a conversation about Me Too, for example. Um, And I don't want to walk away. Uh, I don't want to contribute necessarily because it's not my place to contribute. But I want my silence to be heard as a positive silence. And I thought that was a really really interesting uh, question. So mine to you is what's your experience of how young women communicate with young men and how young men feel in the context where these norms are not ones that they created, but they're ones that they inherited and how do they manage all of that?
1: I think it's really difficult from what I've seen for young men, because obviously we've got certain phrases and certain things we call people, which is just norm like and we don't think about which oh that's an insult just use that yeah so one of the things i'm trying to do is use like if if i do have to call someone something nasty i try and use words that are like not genitalia based for example you know and try and take that out of it so it's not as focused around that because there's nothing wrong yeah like with those words on their own um but i do find that When they're on their own, usually, I I find that they're lovely, really open, and there's nothing wrong. But when there's a group of them, they do start coming out with the, oh, go back to the kitchen, why don't you make me a sandwich kind of thing, which is really frustrating because they don't want to seem like weak, I guess, in front of their peers. But we need to somehow, I'm not sure how, we need to somehow make them know that it's okay. You don't look weak. You're actually stronger because you're supporting us rather than just putting us down all the time. But I don't know how to do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm, okay. Um,
2: and say, if we said 10 years to 2028, which is the anniversary of Equal Franchise, which is this 10-year goal for how we need to do as much as we want to within this period... What would you prioritise? What do you think is the most important thing that changes so that we have equality within 10 years?
1: Uh, for me personally, yeah. um, I would like to see more women in tech because that's where my heart is at the minute in tech. So I have been doing Code Club And I've been going out to schools doing that as well. And we go to all-girls schools so we can show them that actually there are women in tech and we're trying to change their idea around tech. So bringing them into the office, showing them like the incredible office there. I'm sure you saw it as you were coming up. Yeah, it's fantastic. I've got a slide and all sorts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So I've been going out into the community and trying to show them that they are capable of what they want to do. So I think for me, getting a more equal split in tech would be my goal during that time and continuing just to do that work
2: brilliant and more animal sanctuaries
1: absolutely (laughs) great
2: Great. lovely talking to you
1: you too thank Thank you very much Bye.